0: hello again fight fans welcome back to the neutral corner episode 113 i am michael montero for boxing monthly magazine and boxingmonthly.com and if you're watching this on youtube then by now that you've noticed that there's uh there's no picture there's no video the reason for that is i had to break down the studio the green screen studio setup i had uh here at the house because i'm actually preparing my home to put it on the market I got a two bedroom condo here in Los Angeles and I converted one room into a studio, but I can't show the house that way or the condo that way when I sell it. So I had to uh, convert it back into just a regular bedroom. So for the next couple months, we're gonna be doing TNC like this, where it's just gonna be the audio file. And for those of you listening on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, for you guys, it's just business as usual with TNC. But for you guys on YouTube, it's gonna be a little funny for a while. Please bear with me as I go through this process trying to sell this home and get into a bigger one so I can do an even bigger studio. More to come with that. Uh, We might do some like on location episodes or something like that. Maybe I'll do some episodes from the gym or something or maybe even for the roof of my building, Montero on rooftops. All right. So it's just going to be like this for a little while. And then we'll get back to the studio setup that you guys are used to where you get to see my beautiful, handsome face talk about boxing Uh, one quick housekeeping note that uh, I remind you guys of every week please do go to iTunes Stitcher SoundCloud drop a rating drop a review spread the word about those podcasts tweet them out if you guys want to copy me I'll blast your stuff out there I'll retweet it get your word out or your name out there as well Uh, and also spread the word about the channel here on YouTube and thank you once again as always to our Patreon supporters, you guys are awesome. Okay, we had a ton of big news to catch up on, so let's get right into it, news and notes. Okay, before I get into the big, big news, um, and I know you guys are, are ready for me to talk about some of this stuff. I wanted to quickly talk about Scott Westgarth, who fought last Saturday, February 24th, last, last Saturday, in the UK, won the fight but collapsed in the dressing room after the fight and actually died in the hospital. He's dead at 31 years old. Uh, We lost another one of our boxing brothers, guys. And despite all the divisions in this sport and the politics and the, the infighting and all that, we can all agree that this is a brotherhood in boxing. And um, I just wanted to express my thoughts and everything for the Westgarth family. And guys, you know, next time you go to the gym and you get ready to beat up on that heavy bag, that speed bag, ready to do some sparring, whatever it is, think inside your mind, think the name Scott Westgarth, do a 10 count for him. I think every fighter that we lose in this most brutal of sports deserves that. Okay, let's get to the big, big breaking news today, which obviously was Canelo Alvarez popping on a VADA test for clenbuterol. Now, a lot of you guys uh, were asking for a rant video and you wanna know my thoughts on this because I've talked a lot about this performance enhancing drugs issue over the last year or so. I will delve into it in more detail once we have more details, but let me give you the information that I have right now, okay? This was a test performed by VADA on February 17th. This was the A sample. so. Every sample they take, they do an A sample and a B sample, and the A sample came back positive for Clembuterol, which of course is a banned substance. I've talked about it before on my channel, about the benefits and why some athletes use it and uh, why it's banned, okay? It has been related to contaminated meat in several countries, and I'll talk more about that in a second. So there's some nuance there, and there's some uh, controversy about, um, should it be on the banned list, uh, the prohibited list that WADA sets, and if it is, should there be certain thresholds, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of like meldonium, and the, the issues we've had with that substance. But back to this test. So. When I say positive, okay, um, that means more than zero. That means some, but these were trace amounts. How trace? The sample came back with 0.08 nanograms per milliliter of clenbuterol. What is a nanogram? A nanogram is one billionth of a gram, not millionth with an M, billionth with a B. So 0.08 billionths of a gram of clenbuterol was found in a urine test, in the, ASAP, the A sample of a urine test performed by or collected by VADA on February 17th. VADA collects the sample. They send it off to the lab. So the lab people contacted everybody. Both teams are aware. They've already talked to Bob Bennett, Nevada State Athletic Commission, with how to proceed. Canelo and Golden Boy, have Golden Boy released a statement. I don't even need to read through that because if you guys are on all the boxing blogs, everybody immediately posted it. Even though all they do is copy and paste and try to pretend it's their story, it's really just a statement from Golden Boy that they're posting on their blog to get a clickbait, okay? So you guys have already seen the statement from Golden Boy. Canelo is cooperating fully uh, with all the questions and everything like that, and he is taking his training camp from Mexico to America, which is where it should have been from the start. The guy's been training in San Diego in recent years. I don't know what the hell he was doing in Mexico to start with, but uh, he is cooperating and he's being totally open. He's willing to take additional testing from Vada, at his own expense, of course, uh, whatever the ruling is from the BC and all the parties involved. So we'll see how this whole thing is adjudicated over the next days and weeks, okay? Everybody went nuts on the internet today, and it hasn't even reached the sports centers. Tomorrow, by the time you guys are listening to this podcast, it's going to be on the ESPNs, the Max Kellermans, the Stephen A. Smiths, the Skip Baylesses. They're going to be talking about this crap, and it's going to be nutty. None of these people have the sophistication, uh, the knowledge about what's going on in the, how these tests are performed and everything else. You're just going to see headlines that say, Canelo test positive because it's a clickbait type of headline and these sites all make money based on clicks and views, right? That generates their ad revenue. So that's what you're going to be seeing and hearing in the coming weeks. There's going to be a huge fallout from this, but I could tell you right now, there's no way the fight's getting canceled. It's going to go forward and there's a lot, people need to be really, really careful the way they talk about this stuff. Okay. And I've been guilty, guilty in the past of, Tweeting things without clearly reading it and thinking about the words I was using, saying things in videos that I could have said more clearly. There's a lot of nuance. It's a living, breathing organism. This performance-enhancing drugs testing business is. There's so much gray area. So people need to be careful. But I'm going to post a couple links here uh, on this uh, podcast to uh, releases from WADA and USADA as it is related to clenbuterol, and the worldwide issue with uh, clenbuterol being used in certain parts of the world for livestock. To get the livestock to grow bigger, stronger, faster because they make more money that way. Clenbuterol is routinely used in countries like China. I know they use it in, um, in swine and in pigs. And I know in Mexico they use it, I believe, in poultry and uh, beef. So, it's commonly used in those countries, but also other parts of the world. For what it's worth, use in livestock is banned here in the United States, and it is banned in the European Union. Funny enough, in the United States, you can inject your livestock with hormones, we're cool with that, but we don't allow you to, to, uh, to enhance the livestock with clambuterol here. So, okay, my initial thoughts, my gut feel. There's two ways you guys can look at this, okay? You can look at it as there's traces of traces of this substance found in this urine sample. Canelo has the right, the fighter has the right to demand the B sample be tested if they feel that the A sample may have been contaminated in the chain of custody, the process from the person collecting the sample, sending it through the mail, all the way to the lab and the lab people processing it. Canelo, at the time I'm recording this, has not requested that, and I don't think he will. There have been other fighters who have popped on tests in recent years. Some of them have popped multiple times and they have demanded that the B sample be tested. And the B sample has come back positive as well. So, um, because you know they were trying to uh, insinuate that the chain of custody, the lab, the, the, even VADA, the people involved were contaminating or that there was some kind of foul plague or conspiracy at play, which I thought was tasteless and disgusting by those fighters and their defenders. I don't think Canelo's going to do that. I don't think we're going to get the B sample tested. Maybe he will, maybe. But I think what's going to happen here is Canelo's going to come to America where he should have been training the whole time anyway. And he's going to have more stringent testing from Vada. And they're going to release the results of those tests throughout. And um, I think that everything will come back negative and the fight will go forward. That's my gut feel. Now. Sometimes, when trace elements of these banned substances, and they're all different and people use them for different reasons, but sometimes when you see trace elements like this, it can indicate a fighter microdosing. Without getting into all the science behind microdosing, because I don't want to talk forever about this subject here, uh, it's a way for an athlete to use little tiny amounts of a banned substance to where they can dilute the their urine while using it so it doesn't hit or pop on a test so that is a a method that some athletes use to dope they do micro clenbuterol really isn't used as a masking agent or uh, i guess you could do micro dosing but i don't under i don't think you'd really get the benefits from what it does for you uh, micro dosing and there really hasn't been any cases from a notable athlete using it as a masking agent for other performance enhancing drugs. So when you look at the combined history with contaminated meat in Mexico, and there was a study done, I wanna say it was like four or five years ago, where over 100 uh, livestock slaughterhouses were examined and I think 25% of them came back, I think it might have been more than that. It might have actually been like a third, came back contaminated. So uh, there is an issue there. And there's even a bigger issue in China. Now you might be asking, why don't we hear about a bunch of Chinese boxers popping for clenbuterol? Well, there just aren't as many Chinese boxers, guys. There have been plenty of athletes over there that have tested. And there have been people who have suffered from what they call clenbuterol poisoning, over there that aren't even athletes. And when it comes to Mexican contaminated meat, we've had NFL players vacation in Mexico in the off season with their family, come back for like mini camp and stuff in the summer and test positive for Clenbuterol. So it's something that w- there is an issue there, and the testing authorities. Uh, make it very, very clear. In fact, I think WADA has several releases where they uh, warn teams, like Olympic teams or amateur teams in various sports, traveling to these countries to only eat at restaurants who certify that they buy their meat from slaughterhouses that confirm that they're not, they don't have contaminated meat, that they don't use those substances with their livestock. So there's all kinds of releases. I'll post a couple of them on this video, but you guys can just go to Google. You could go to Wada's site and you could see all this stuff. So my gut feel here is that everything's gonna work out. Fight's gonna go forward. It's gonna cause a lot of, you know, it could work as a benefit. For the people involved, because it's going to be a lot of free promotion from people who don't normally talk boxing, who are going to be talking about Canelo Alvarez now because of this positive test. One quick note before I move on to the next thing, you guys. You know, I've got a, I've taken a lot of flack from you guys about the way I reported the Alexander Povetkin situation, the Lucas Brown situation, the Luis Ortiz situation. Every one of these situations is completely different than the other. Yes, sometimes there are parallels and comparisons, sure. But every single one, you have to take them by a case-by-case basis, and you have to look at the sequence of events preceding the test and after the test. You have to look at where where the fighter was, what was going on. There's always a story there. And right now, we don't have the sequence of events, uh, all the details from this Canelo Alvarez situation. So as that comes out, I will report it. But for right now, I don't see a major red flag that makes me that concerned. All of this is consistent with cases we have seen before of contaminated meats as it relates to clenbuterol. For the record, Canelo Alvarez paid for full, the full VADA panel in it last year in his fight with Golovkin, and he's never failed a drug test before. Same thing with Golovkin. Here's the thing though. That doesn't mean that these guys are 100% clean for certainty. We don't know that because even if you're getting tested for the eight to 10 weeks you're in camp, if you're fighting twice a year, you're in camp four or five months a year, cool. What do you do when those other seven, eight months of the year back home in your home country We don't know. So even if these guys are doing the full VADA panel and they're paying for it at their own expense during camp for a fight, that means that they're clean during camp, but we still don't know for sure what they're doing outside of camp. So the only guys that we know who we can say for certainty are 100% clean are guys who are being routinely regularly tested throughout the year now a lot of you guys talk about the wbc clean boxing program that in theory is supposed to do that but because their budget is so small most of the ranked fighters are only getting tested once or twice a year through that program if that there are dozens of fighters who don't even get tested every year so Just because you're in that program doesn't necessarily mean you're being tested every month or every week or anything like that. So you guys got to remember all these things, okay? There's a lot of nuance here. You got to be very careful. If you're a guy who does a blog or you got a YouTube channel or even a, a Twitter page where you talk about boxing and stuff, maybe you got a Facebook page, you talk about boxing. Be very, very careful in the words you use, okay? This stuff is very nuanced all right so be careful what you're reading be careful what you're posting okay moving on to lewis Neri, which correlates in a way to this canelo story because he's a fellow mexican fighter he's tested positive before right and he blamed it on the mexican contaminated meat that was last year when he scored that win over shinsuke yamanaka to win a title and now this week or last week i should say he came in five pounds overweight And this dude ain't a cruiserweight coming five pounds overweight. This is a Bantamweight coming in five pounds overweight. Absolutely disgusting, inexcusable. Yet the fight goes on. He wins by knockout. I think last year it was a four-round knockout. This year it was a two-round knockout. And uh, the WBC has suspended him indefinitely. Uh, To use their words, and this is a quote from them, For a Bantamweight champion to arrive at the official weigh-in five pounds over is simply unacceptable. I agree with this wholeheartedly. I give the WBC a lot of crap, but I also give them credit when they do something right. Now, they're going to have a a hearing, and Neri is going to plead his case, and this, that, the other. They're obviously going to suspend the dude, but they're not going to suspend him for life. They want that sanctioning fee, and they don't want to take this guy's livelihood for quote-unquote one mistake. So how long would a suspension be? Now, Steve Kim in his podcast made a point that uh, he's tweeted about this, that if it's a six-month suspension, who cares? A lot of these fighters only fight twice a year anyway. So you're not killing the guy. This should be a two-year suspension. Make a statement. Now, I've been brutal in my criticism of guys like Gervonta Davis, Adrian Broner, and others for missing weight like this. And I'm going to be no less brutal with Luis Neri. He needs to be suspended for at least two years. Okay, Anything less than a year suspension is a slap in the face to boxing fans. And I go back to what I said with the Canelo situation about the sequence of events. This guy test positive last year, right? Test positive for a banned substance, knocks out Yamanaka, who had never been uh, knocked out, never lost up until that point. Subsequently... Uh, fights a stay busy kind of fight a few months later and is dropped in that fight, struggles, but pulls out the win. Doesn't look quite as good. And now sits off that whole time, right? I think he was out for a few months, whatever, uh, but gets back in camp and then fights Yamanaka again, comes in five pounds overweight, knowing he's being drug tested, right? So for a guy who made weight, had no problems making weight before when he tested positive, and then comes in five pounds over, knowing he's being tested this time so he can't use, that sequence of events looks very suspicious. Completely different situation and sequence of events than what we know right now about Canelo Alvarez. And that's why I say you guys have to look at the nuance of every situation differently. I look at Luis Neri right now and I'm highly suspicious. And if I was advising or managing or promoting a fighter who is going to face Luis Neri, I would want crazy stringent testing. I'd want this guy tested dozens of times before I got in the ring with him. So more to come with this. We'll find out what the WBC does. Okay, other news. Adrian Broner versus Omar Figueroa is off. Honestly, there's... Anybody give a shit who really was excited for this fight. I know I wasn't. So Figueroa got a DUI, I think it was uh what last month, or maybe it was in January, I think. And he's doing court later this month to uh to deal with the ramifications of that. But on the arrest sheet, it listed him at like over I think it was over 170 pounds. So you can see that this guy was having trouble, he was not gonna make weight probably. He's saying he has an injured shoulder. I don't buy it, but I really don't give a shit either way. Now Broner is still gonna fight on the card. He's probably gonna fight Jesse Vargas. So here's the silver lining. Broner-Jesse Vargas, in my opinion, is a more competitive fight than Broner-Figueroa. It might not be as fan-friendly because Figueroa wants to, you know, he likes to brawl, and I think Broner had a good chance of winning that fight. I really, I favored him to win that fight for various reasons. But now against Jesse Vargas, I favor Vargas. I just think he's the fresher fighter. He's got more to him at this stage of his career. And I think we're going to have a more competitive fight that's going to bring out uh, more out of Broner. So I I think we'll get a higher level fight. I don't know if it'll be as exciting, quote unquote, as a Broner-Figueroa fight might have been. But all things considered, silver lining in the gray cloud I like, the, I like Jesse Vargas against Broner. I think he's going to beat him. Okay, one more item of news. Apparently Manny Pacquiao has rejected the fight against Mike Alvarado that was supposed to be on the, the co-main of the Jeff Horn-Terrence Crawford fight. He says, and I quote, it was an insult, or it's an insult. That fight is an insult. He's right, but it was an insult to fans from the jump. I'm sure none of you guys were excited about it. Here's what I really think, Manny Pacquiao. I'm just going to translate for Manny. I think this was his ego being unable to accept being the co-main to Jeff Horn, Terrence Crawford. My How the mighty have fallen, right? I think it had to do more with that because this guy has fought some overmatched opponents and pay-per-views where he charged fans 80 bucks a head to fight an overmatched fighter who had no business being on a pay-per-view. He had no problem doing that if it was the main event, and he was getting paid crazy, crazy money, but for a lot less money in a co-main, it's an insult. I'm not buying it, Manny. I think that uh, your pride got a little hurt, and you weren't having it. All right, guys, that's enough for uh, that's it for the news and notes. We got a lot to review, so let's get to it. All right, Wednesday, February 28th, Daniel Roman wins a unanimous decision over Ryu Matsumoto, defending his WBA 122-pound title for the first time. This was in Tokyo. Uh, he, his last fight where he won the title last year was over in Japan, I believe in Kyoto. So uh, he looks good. He, he's, he's peaking right now, Roman. He's a problem for anybody in that division. And there's plenty of guys he can unify against. Um, And he's ready. I think his team should think about doing that. Now, very next day, Thursday, March 1st, there's a card I talked about a second ago in News & Notes. Luis Neri scores a TKO2 win over Shinsuke Yamanaka, but loses his WBC Bantamweight title on the scales. That title is now vacant. Yamanaka retires after this fight, which he should. Uh, He was, you know, he's ready. I think he's had a long, distinguished career. He was one of the better Bantamweights for a while there. But I really, really struggled with this fight going forward. I just didn't think it should have happened. I understand Yamanaka wanted the payday. And I think that Neri, since he missed weight, a portion of his purse, additional portion, went to Yamanaka. So I get that he wanted the payday and everything. He wanted revenge. But man, when you have one guy who's in his 30s killing himself to make weight. Man, it is hard to make weight, guys, when you're in your 30s, your mid-30s. It's hard. And then you have a young guy coming in five pounds overweight, which tells me, that's a red flag, a dead giveaway, that they knew they weren't gonna make weight and just didn't even bother trying. They just got ready for a fight. They just got in shape for a fight. So you got a young guy in his physical prime, not even trying to make weight. And you have another guy killing himself to make weight. That alone, changes the dynamic of the fight so much that this fight really shouldn't have went forward for team Nery, it's so unprofessional and disgusting they could have weeks before the fight contacted yamanaka's team and said look we can't make weight we're not going to make weight we're off can we do a catch weight can we do a fight at 122 123 that way, you guys can take it easy. You don't have to kill yourself. And let, let's do, uh, you know, let's put the title uh, vacant. And it, they could have at least tried to negotiate that. Now, Yamanaka, maybe he wouldn't have had it. But they could have tried. They could have reached out. That would have been the professional thing to do. So anyway, this fight went forward. Neri, I talked about the sequence of events. I talked about the comparison to guys like Javante Davis. You got to put them in that same bucket. But even more so because Javante Davis, for all the issues he's had—not making weight, being unprofessional—guys never failed a drug test. So you know, to me, this Luis Nery highly suspicious, and he needs to be suspended. Saturday, March third in Puerto Rico, Jason Velez scores a TKO win in the twelfth and final round over Juan Manuel Lopez. And look, good win for Velez. You know, he can uh, he is—he's got Puerto Rican bragging rights, right? but for Juanma Lopez it is time to retire. It has been time to retire for years. This guy is 5 and 6 in his last 11 fights going back to 2011. All 6 losses he was stopped, sometimes brutally stopped. So, you look at the guy's record. If you saw a fighter's record as 5 and 6, what would you call him? You call him a journeyman. Now, against elite level, you know, he's fought some good fighters Juanma has, so you know I don't I'm not saying that to be disrespectful when I say journeyman what I'm saying is his record over the last seven years is five and six with six knockout losses that's a journeyman's record guys it's time for him to retire somebody in his team needs to have a hard discussion a hard talk with him and tell him the truth now in the UK Josh Taylor was supposed to fight Humberto Soto. A little bit of a buzz kill. Soto cut himself in sparring. So Nicaraguan Winston Campos is pulled in at the last second. And Taylor does what he's supposed to do. Scores a TKO 3 win. He's now 12-0 with 11 knockouts. Defends his WBC 140-pound silver title for the second time. Also in the UK, Kell Brook. Gets back in the win column. Scores a second round knockout over Sergei Robchanka. Get this. For the vacant WBC silver junior middleweight title. Now I tweeted about this. How the hell does the WBC sanction this as a title fight? And the silver title is kind of like their interim title. Their mandatory number, number one spot kind of title. So it's not the full title. I get it. But even for this silver title, how do you sanction this? this Junior middleweight title, okay, 154 pounds. Brooke was coming off two losses. One of them was at 147 pounds to uh, to Errol Spence. The one before that was at 160 pounds to Gennady Golovkin. In both of those fights, he was brutally beat up. His face was literally broken and he was stopped. Neither one was at 154 pounds. Brook has never fought at 154, at least against not you know a high-level opponent. So how the hell does the WBC justify this? I just don't. I don't understand them sometimes. Again, I give them credit when they do some things right, but I have to give them criticism when they do some things wrong. And they do so much wacky shit like this, where it's obvious they just want them you know Eddie Hearn dollars. That's just all they want. I can't help but chuckle at this. It's so ridiculous. Also. On this card, uh, formerly undefeated prospect Gamal Fai, who's the younger brother of Khalid Yafai, and has nowhere near as high of a ceiling as a fighter. He suffers his first loss, a unanimous decision to Gavin McDonald. So, okay, let's come over here to the United States where we had dual cards on HBO and Showtime in the same market. Let's start with the card that was announced first, Well before the Showtime card was announced, Main Events had a card in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Dimitri Bevel scores a TKO 12 win over Sullivan Barrera. I was highly impressed with his performance. He did have to battle through a little bit of adversity. He had a cut. He had a hematoma on his forehead. So uh, he had to battle a little bit. But he proved that his power... And his skill set is legit. Uh, he was up one hundred nine, one hundred, and all three scorecards before the stoppage. I thought Barrera won a couple rounds. You could have gave a couple rounds to Barrera. Either way, Bevel is now thirteen and zero with eleven knockouts. And there's a lot of people out there who are, I guess, they're looking at Barrera. They're overlooking Barrera. I don't know what well, the right word. I'm struggling to find the right word here. But they're just dissing him. As if he wasn't a proven top five light heavyweight coming into this fight. He absolutely was. And it's it's really undermining Bevel's accomplishment in his 13th professional fight dominating and stopping a fighter like this. This was a great performance. When you look at the punch numbers. Okay, I got some CompuBox graphics up here that they sent me. I'm looking at this. And total punches... When you look at the averages per round both guys threw 56 punches around which is a little more than the light heavyweight average and they landed a little more than average barrera landed 16.4 punches beevil 17.6 punches so when you're looking at punch numbers this was a very close fight when you look at jabs both guys landed about five jabs around and about a dozen power punches around very very even the difference was Beevil's punches are so much heavier. Guy punches through the target. His offense is his defense, right? Barrera it was a proven, good, solid, light heavyweight. He had only lost once coming into this fight against Andre Ward. But and he was dropped in that fight by Ward. But he came back and fought hard. And he put some leather on Ward. He won a few rounds in that fight. Look at Andre Ward's face after that fight with Sullivan Barrera. And that was Barrera's first test. He was inexperienced going into that fight. He learned so much in that fight. This version of Sullivan Barrera that Dimitri Bevel beat last Saturday at MSG was a better version that than Andre Ward beat a couple years ago. Seriously, guys. It was a more battle-tested, fully-developed version of Barrera that Beevil dominated. For him to do that in his 13th pro fight, I, I don't, this is just kind of like falling under the radar on all the podcasts and shows. They're not talking about this enough. This is a big deal. This was a good win for him. And he proved that he's probably the second, third best light heavyweight in the world right now. And he might ultimately be the best. We might be looking at the future of this division. That's certainly the way it looks with the eye test. In the main event, Sergey Kovalev scores a seventh round TKO win over Igor McCulkin, who everyone is now calling McCulloch Culkin on all the podcasts, which is kind of hilarious. Now, look, this fight was a beatdown. That's what we thought was going to happen, right? Uh, interesting, again, you look at the punch numbers here. I'm just, I'm just reading this off CompuBox. Uh, McCulloch Culkin threw 75 punches around, Kovalev only threw 50 around. McCulk had landed 18 punches around. Kovalev only landed 15. The difference is Sergey's punches are just so much heavier. He beat the hell out of this guy and cut him up. Dude was bleeding profusely. And finally, uh, the corner, um, you know, well, the fight was stopped in the seventh round and it was kind of a mercy stoppage. There was no reason for the fight to continue. Now, I told you guys last week in the preview portion of episode 112 that this. German based, I think he's a Ukrainian native, was going to go rounds. When this fight was first announced, everyone thought, oh, this is the Shabransky fight again. No, this dude had over 200 amateur fights. Guys like that know how to survive a little and spoil a little. He was a southpaw and that gave uh, that gave Kovalev some things to think about. So all in all, I think this was a good performance for Sergei, got him some rounds in, but obviously this was just freaking target practice, right? he needs to step up the opposition now for what it's worth bevel after the fight with uh, after the win over barrera said that he is willing to fight sergey kovalev next and that's what he told me when i talked to him when he was here in los angeles a week or two, week or two ago at the superfly card kovalev told me when i talked to him that he's willing to fight bevel but in the post fight interview with max kellerman on hbo he didn't seem overly anxious to jump in the ring with bevel next main events his promoter, is apparently talking about a Joe Smith Jr. fight next. Now, I'm only cool with that if that is a stay-busy fight over the summer and they fight Bivol in the fall. The Kovalev-Bivol fight needs to happen this year. If it doesn't, shame on Sergey Kovalev and shame on main events. That fight needs to happen. I get if they want to fight Joe Smith Jr. in the summer. Let's remember, Kovalev's a Russian guy. New York has a very large Russian population, that whole area. Joe Smith is from Long Island, the suburbs of New York. So that fight makes sense back there in New York at MSG or somewhere in that area. Makes a lot of sense. So I get if they want to come back in June or July or something and do that fight. Cool. And that makes sense for a summer uh, a summer broadcast on HBO Championship Boxing that fits into their budget and everything. It works out perfect. But then come back later in the year, in the fall, and fight Dimitri Bival. That fight needs to happen this year. I know Bival and his team are more than willing to do it. Is Sergei and his team willing to do it? We'll find out. I hope so. Now, going across the river into Brooklyn, the hipster capital of the East Coast, uh, there was a card on Showtime, obviously. You might have heard about it. <laughs> on the undercard, Sergey Derevyanchenko, Willie Monroe Jr., and prospect Gary Antoine Russell all stayed busy and scored wins. Uh, this was a good, solid card, top to bottom, man. Um, Lou DiBella did a good job with this card, putting together a lot of good fights on the undercard for the fans there to watch and keep them entertained. And for the most part, they all delivered, man. In the co-main, Jose Uzcategui. And I've heard his last name pronounced 8 billion different ways. The guys on Showtime were saying Uzcategui the other night. So I'm going to go with that. I've also heard Uzcategui. I've heard all kinds of stuff. But Jose Uzcategui scores an 8th round retirement win over Andre Durrell and wins the interim IBF junior, or I'm sorry, super middleweight title. And and, um, Caleb Truex is the full champion. So at some point, he is going to get a crack at Caleb Truax. I think Truax, before fighting Uzcada is going to do a rematch with James DeGale. I think that's what we're going to see first, which, you know, I welcome that. So Uzcada might end up fighting James DeGale, depending on how that fight goes, that rematch. We'll see. Uh, at the time of the stoppage, I thought that Judge Tony Paolillo, his score of 79-73 was correct. The other two judges had it, a little too close. I, I didn't think Durrell did anything more than win maybe one round in this fight. He looked horrible. Uzcala guy is from Venezuela, now based in Tijuana. Very tall and lanky. He has a very similar build to Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez, who I think is the best in this division right now. I think you have to rate... Zerdo number one. I think you have to rate David Benavidez, number two. George Groves, number three. But I'm putting the Venezuelan right in there at number four. He is a live player in this division now. Okay, let's talk about the main event. And it was a big, big heavyweight showdown between Deontay Wilder and Luis Ortiz. Wilder wins by TKO in the 10th round, defending his WBC title I believe for the eighth time his WBC heavyweight title. So good, solid heavyweight fight in terms of drama, in terms of back and forth, give and take, heart determination shown by both men. In terms of all of that, good, solid heavyweight title fight, man. And uh, for both of these guys, they were making a quantum leap in opposition I think a lot of people were focusing only on Wilder finally stepping up. But this was Ortiz stepping up as well. And I know he's been ducked by some people. But real peep, real. He had fought nobody. He, I, I give him credit for the win against Bryant Jennings. okay? But that was in 2015. Coming into this fight, he was not the most proven heavyweight himself. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But Wilder gets the win. He's now 40 and over 39 knockouts. He finally has a win that he can really hang his hat on where he really proved himself and exercised some demons. You could see it in his his eyes that he really, um, a lot of the criticism had gotten to him and he wanted to prove people wrong and win this fight in an emphatic way and he did. A lot of people are calling this the fight of the year. I'm not so sure about that. Definitely going to be a top 10 candidate by the end of the year. Could be a top five candidate. I hope not because then that means we had a poor 2018. But was this fight really better? Was it really that much better than Rungvisai Estrada? I I can tell you right now, Rungvisai Estrada round 12 is the round of the year. I don't know how anything's going to top that. I didn't think any round in this fight came anywhere near close to topping that. This was an exciting fight because it's heavyweights and that amplifies everything because it's two huge guys. That, that always amplifies every every aspect of the fight in terms of the atmosphere and, and the feel and the tension and all that stuff. But the back and forth, the give and take and the skill deficit that I saw in this fight compared to... I, I For me... Rungvisai Estrada, maybe it's not better. Maybe Wilder Ortiz is slightly better, but that's kind of like 1A and 1B right now. And I know for damn sure round 12 of Rungvisai Estrada was better than any round of Wilder Ortiz. So best heavyweight fight we've seen since Joshua Klitschko? Fine, at least at this level. Yes, I'll give you that. But for Brandon Schaub, this MMA guy, to tweet that it was the best Heavyweight fight of all time. He even say he didn't even say best heavyweight championship fight. He said the best heavyweight fight ever. That's ridiculous. And that guy has a show on Showtime where I know the focus is MMA, but he also talks boxing. That's just absolutely disgusting. I had to tweet about that and post about that because I need to have that damn show. Not some joker like that who has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And people responded to him on Twitter saying, nah, man, this was a poor man's Joshua Klitschko. And he was going, no, 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 no. This was better than Joshua Klitschko because Klitschko is old and coming off a layoff. Well, what the hell do you say about Luis Ortiz? you telling me that Luis Ortiz was better than Vladimir Klitschko, even though Klitschko was technically older and coming off a layoff and all that? Vladimir, the Vladimir Klitschko that fought Anthony Joshua would have knocked out Luis Ortiz. It would have been a jab and grab fest for several rounds. Yeah, I know it would have been boring and dull for a lot of you guys. But he would have worn him down and knocked him the hell out clean with one right hand. It wouldn't have been an accumulation of punches. So I, I just, best fight ever. Best heavy, better than Joshua Klitschko. Get the hell out of here, man. Anyway, judges had it 85-84, three ways, four wilder after nine rounds, which is laughable. I thought Luis Ortiz was winning the fight. Now, some people had him up by like four or five points. I think that's a bit ridiculous. He was dropped, and Wilder had worked his way back into the fight. And after surviving the seventh round, I should add, uh, Ortiz, his offensive output drastically dropped after the eighth round. And I'll get into the punch numbers round by round in a second here. Because this fight, I mean, the old man just completely shot his wad in the seventh round. And when you really break down that sequence, Ortiz really smothered his work and wasted a great opportunity. Uh, he looked amateurish in that sequence, in a way. Um, so, I don't know. There, there's some parallels of this fight, between this fight and the Joshua Klitschko fight, which I'll talk about. But uh, they're easy parallels, but there's a lot of differences, guys. A lot of differences. This was Wilder's version of you know Joshua and Klitschko. I get that, but it was nowhere near as good of a fight. And I'm not saying that to hate on Wilder. This is a tremendous accomplishment from him, and I hope he can build from this and do even better. I think he could fight a lot better than he fought against Luis Ortiz. I thought uh, I didn't understand why he kept giving up his height and letting a guy who was slower than him. Uh, didn't move as fast with his feet or hands. It was punching up at him with less length. Get inside continuously and land punches. Uh, Even though they were glancing blows and Wilder rolled with a lot of them very, very well. I don't know if he was doing that to try to set him up or to tire him out to shoot his wad. Maybe that was the strategy. And if it was, then you know what? It was genius. It worked, you know? Uh, So I'll give him credit for that if that was the case. But we got to see. Uh, a lot of people are complaining about, after the seventh round, how the ring doctor, the ref invited the ring doctor over to inspect Wilder. This is something the New York State Athletic Commission has done uh, multiple times in recent years since the tragedy involving Magomed Abdusalamov, salamov going back several years. Uh, so I understand why they do it. They just do it very inconsistently, and it does it's not a good look when you have 60 seconds between rounds that you could look at Wilder, yet you wait until after that, and you take an extra like 30 seconds, you know, breaking the action of the eighth round to inspect him, yet you didn't do that the same way with Ortiz after the, I think the fifth round when he was dropped. It's just not a good look. They could have handled it better. And again, I, I always go back to the California State Athletic Commission being the best in the country, California. Every commission makes mistakes and has issues, but California just doesn't make these sorts of mistakes on a routine basis like New York does, like Texas does, and some of these other commissions. So New York could just do a much, much better job with stuff like this. Um, but look, did Wilder get a little special treatment on the scorecards, maybe from the ref and the ring doctor and the whole thing? Maybe, okay? But it's still on Ortiz to follow up in the eighth round and get him out of there. He didn't do it. Plus, he was the B-side. This is boxing. You know, people say this is boxing. This is sports, guys. The home team, the A-side, always gets preferential treatment in every damn sport on planet Earth. So to pretend that this is limited just to boxing or just to Deontay Wilder or just to PBC is laughable. Anthony Joshua gets preferential treatment. I thought he got preferential treatment in a Klitschko fight on multiple occasions. Maybe to a lesser degree than this, but he got preferential treatment against Carlos Tacum. That fight was stopped and it didn't need to be. This happens with A-sides. So I'm not surprised uh with the way the seventh round or that you know was handled. Are there other refs that would have stopped the fight? Yeah. Are there if if the situation was, was reversed and Ortiz had been on Queer Street like that, would the ref have jumped in and stopped it? TKO went for Wilder? abso freaking But you know that coming in as the B-side. You know that's what you're facing. And that's just the reality of sports. If you're in the NFL and you are the Chicago Bears and you're playing the Dallas Cowboys in Arlington Stadium, there, or at and Stadium in Arlington, Texas, you know damn well some calls are going to go against you and go the way of the Dallas Cowboys. You know that coming into town, and you have to game plan for it and prepare for it. It's part of sports. So for a lot of people out there to suggest that uh, this this win isn't on the up and up for Deontay Wilder, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. It is. He deserves credit for surviving that seventh round and coming back and finishing the fight. However, he doesn't deserve the, the, the amount of credit that some people are giving him. Some people are overdoing it. They're going a little too far with this, okay? Okay. Um, Let's look at Ortiz. Came into this fight over 241 pounds. Really should have been in the mid-230s. His blood pressure was high all week. The, The New York Commission had tested him several times. They were so concerned about him that they flew in Charles Martin Friday night to be on standby to possibly sub for Ortiz. Ortiz himself was not fully cleared by the New York State Athletic Commission to fight Deontay Wilder until Saturday morning. That is the condition this man was in going into this fight, okay? So, taking all that into consideration, given the fact that this guy had beat nobody other than Bryant Jennings, who was coming off a loss to Vladimir Klitschko, who had already softened him up. Klitschko beat a better version of Jennings than than, um, than, uh, Ortiz beat. Although he beat him emphatically, fine. But quantum leap in opposition here, plus that win was three years ago, guys. That was in 2015. This is 2018. All right, keep up. Taking all that into consideration, let me ask a serious question to you guys. And I want you to think about this. Was Luis Ortiz more of a test for Deontay Wilder than Sullivan Barrera was for Dimitri Bivol? Think about that for a second. Because for me, Yeah, they're two black Cuban guys, but that's where the comparisons end. I think Dimitri Bivol's win over Sullivan Barrera, a more battle-tested, more proven fighter coming in than Luis Ortiz. I think that rate's higher for me than Deontay Wilder beating Luis Ortiz. Now, Wilder did it in more exciting fashion. It was more dramatic. It was a heavyweight fight. All that stuff, I get it. But I still think that this Bevel thing is flying under the radar. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, the similarities. You know, I talked about Joshua Klitschko and, and Wilder Ortiz. You know what? A prime Vladimir Klitschko would have iced Anthony Joshua in the sixth round of that fight. That right hand he landed was a few inches higher on the head than it usually lands. Go back and watch his fight with guys like uh, Ruslan Shagayev and stuff. Look at those right hands. That right hand from a 2009 Vladimir Klitschko, a 2010 Vladimir Klitschko, lands a few inches lower, destroys AJ. He'd just now be getting up from it, okay? I think a prime Klitschko beats Anthony Joshua. I think that was clear based on what we saw in that fight. Just like in this fight, you could make an argument perhaps that a prime Luis Ortiz beats Deontay Wilder. A a Luis Ortiz that weighed 231 pounds, let's say, and his blood pressure was in better control and he wasn't on meds for the last couple years. The, The guy that even we saw beat Bryant Jennings maybe would have had the stamina, the sharpness, the accuracy, the reflexes to get Wilder out of there in the seventh round or maybe follow up in the eighth or ninth round to get him out of there. Or just the stamina to not get hit with that big right hand in the 10th round that ended the fight. That big right hand that Deontay Wilder landed was his version of the big uppercut Joshua landed on Klitschko. In both situations, it was an older fighter, an older athlete, gassed, fatigued, and being just a little less sharp in those later rounds than they were in the earlier rounds and shots that they were rolling with that weren't landing cleanly in the early rounds, the big shot landed late in the fight. That's what it was a case of. So there's the parallels where in both of those fights, old man is down early. But weathers the storm, battles back, and has their younger opponent hurt on Queer Street in bad shape. But the younger man, with his youthful energy exuberance, fights back and lasts out. And prove proved himself with some toughness and some intestinal fortitude, some grit. But also, the old guy faded like old guys do. That's the comparisons. Now, the difference is, remember, Joshua Klitschko, I picked Klitschko to win by decision. This fight, Wilder Ortiz, I told you Wilder was going to stop him, right? Different situation. Uh, Klitschko is in much better shape, even out that layoff and everything. Much better shape than Ortiz. Much better fighter, even that version of Klitschko. uh, Much better athlete. And he was the same height, pretty much, as Anthony Joshua. They were punching straight at each other. Uh, Klitschko wasn't punching up at Anthony Joshua, right? So there are several differences here. Ortiz had fought absolutely nobody other than maybe Bryant Jennings and I you know we all know Vladimir Klitschko is one of the top dozen or so heavyweights of all time. So um, Wilder does seem to get a pass from a lot of people and Wilder gets too much criticism from some people. I agree with that. But he also gets a pass from a lot of people for his lack for his fundamental flaws. They say oh he's got the eraser, you know what? I don't care if he's fundamentally flawed. You know, a lot of these are the same people who several, I think two or three years ago when Orlando Salido and Francisco Vargas fought the fight of the year, a lot of those same people were saying that was an unskilled fight with just two quote unquote Mexican brawlers. Such bullshit and not fair. So the double standards from from those groups, you know, from people that talk that way, I can't get with that, okay? You gotta be consistent across the board. Now let me talk real quick about some of these punch numbers and then we'll leave it here. Um, Wilder had a 33-6 to 6 edge in total punches, not just power punches, total punches in the last two rounds. So you could see the fatigue had set in. 18 of Wilder's 60 landed power punches were in the 10th round. So Wilder only landed 60 power punches the entire fight. Going into that 10th round, he had only landed 42 power punches. I don't know how those judges had him ahead. I think that, um, you know, that's... Eh. That's tough, to, that's tough to look at. It's not a good look. 35 of Ortiz's 63 landed power punches, more than half of them, were in round seven and eight. He was done after that. That was his last little hurrah, and that was it. In 33 of Ortiz's 87 landed punches were body punches. Now, let me tell you this. I'm just looking here at CompuBox round by round. Ortiz threw 70 punches in the seventh round. He threw 54 in the eighth round. He threw 25 in the ninth round he threw 15 in the 10th round he landed one jab in the eighth zero in the ninth zero in the tenth that tells me a fighter is exhausted okay sometimes punch stats do tell a story guys and i think the story here was the older fighter in poor physical shape the inferior athlete tired out late the younger man weathered the storm and when he when his man was tired he went for the kill and he got it. Impressive performance by Wilder. He is clearly the number two heavyweight in the world, but again, I don't rate this as high of a win as I rate Anthony Joshua's win over Vladimir Klitschko for a multitude of reasons. One last note on this fight, I promise, and then I'll move on. Deontay Wilder made, I think, $2.1 million. That was his purse. Anthony Joshua has made eight figures several times. He'll make eight figures again in a few weeks against Joseph Parker. For anyone to suggest that the eventual super fight that will take place next year in 2019 before, uh, between Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder, for anyone to suggest that that is a 50-50 fight in terms of purse, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot, and you're being dishonest with yourself. It is not a 50-50 fight in terms of purse. Anthony Joshua will get the lion's share of the purse. Team Wilder knows this. Lou DiBella, Al Heyman, Shelly Finkel, they know this. Okay, so let's put all that to bed. That's enough of the review. Let's get into the preview of what's coming up this week. All right, so I briefly talked about this last week, but Tuesday, March 6th in Chambury, Thailand, Tamanoon Nimamchong, or Knockout CP Freshmart, is defending his WBA strawweight title for the fourth time against Toto Landero. Also, Friday, March 9th on Showtime, it's a showbox card from Deadwood, South Dakota. Reggie's Progray is fighting Julius Ndongo for the interim WBC 140-pound title. Progray was supposed to fight Victor Postal, uh, which I really like that fight a lot, but Postal got hurt, Ndongo stepped in, and look, I love this replacement. You, you gotta love Julius Ndongo's attitude, man. He will fight anybody at any time. For him, this is going to be coming off that loss to Terrence Crawford last year. Pro is 20-0 with 17 knockouts from New Orleans, but now lives and trains in Houston. That growing boxing market there in that, that region of Texas with uh, good gyms in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, that part of the, the state. And um, he's making a big leap in opposition. This is his first big test. I like him big in this fight though, man. I think he's going to make a statement. I think it's absolutely going to go rounds. Could go the distance, but I just see something in pro Grape. He passes my eye test. This fight, he'll prove if he's uh, a contender or a pretender. The Saturday, March 10th, we have a couple cards here in the States. At Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, Texas on Showtime, uh, we have that main event, Sergey Lipinets versus Mikey Garcia, which I'll talk about in a second, but... Also on the card, uh, Richard Comey versus Alejandro Luna. Comey is from Ghana. Good quality fighter, only two losses. One was a controversial split decision loss to Robert Easter. A lot of people felt it could have went either way. The other was a split decision to Denis Shafikov that should have been a unanimous decision for Shafikov. He, he clearly won that fight. I think like seven rounds to five, eight rounds to four. But somehow Adelaide Bird. <laughs> Where have we heard that name before? Somehow Adelaide Bird scored at 116-112 for Comey, which was just laughable. The other judges went the other way. Uh, Luna is an undefeated prospect from Bellflower, California, that's the LA area. Had over hundred amateur fights, uh, but you know, hasn't really fought anybody yet as a pro, so this is a step-up for him. Both guys haven't fought in about a year, so we'll see how the ring rust affects them. In the co-main, Rancis Bartholomew and Kirill Relic are fighting a rematch of their fight last year, which the Cuban won. And, um, you know, a lot of people feel that Relic deserved to win that fight. He outlanded Bartholomew 248 to 137 in total punches, 190 to 91 in power punches. But the judges all had Bartholomew wide on the cards. Bartholomew's undefeated Cuban Former lightweight titleist, Relic is from Belarus. Uh, We'll see what happens in this remaster fighting for that vacant 140 pound title. In the main event, Sergey Lipinets versus Mikey Garcia. This is the first defense of the IBF 140 pound title for Lipinets, who is a former kickboxing chap from Kazakhstan, now fights out of LA. He only had 40 amateur boxing fights in only 13 pro fights. He won the title last November, it was a vacant title and he went through hell and back to win that title, man. So um, tough fight for him, really does not have a whole lot of experience as a boxer. And I know Mikey Garcia sees that and sees that this is pretty much an easy way for him to go into a fourth weight class and win a fourth world title. Obviously I like him big in this fight and it's set up for him to fight the winner of the Bartholomew Relic rematch, because as I mentioned, that is for a vacant title in the same division. So should Garcia want to stay at 140, he's got an opportunity to uh, unify titles with the winner of that fight. Garcia is a disappointment to me, a major disappointment. Um, I, I Look, it is his prerogative to live his life the way he wants, you know what I'm saying, He'd run his career the way he wants, but he looks at himself as a businessman and he doesn't really like boxing. He does it because he's good at it and it's a way for him to make money. And he openly admits that. But I don't quite understand what he's trying to do right now. Some people like it, some people get it. He refuses to work with a promoter. Golden Boy Promotions offered him a three fight deal where he could have got Miguel Cotto. He could have that title that Saddam Ali has. That would have been a title in a fourth weight class. And then he could have dropped down and had a crack at Lucas Matisse which that would have been a title in a fifth weight class because now he's got a title at 147. But, of course, before all that, or I'm sorry, uh, included in that would have been a fight with Jorge Linares at 135, where he could have uh, unified titles and had the lineal championship as a lightweight. So he had a massive opportunity with Golden Boy Promotions. And then he was offered a 50-50 fight, I think, with or just a one-off uh, deal from Golden Boy to fight Linares. Again, lineal. Championship at lightweight with a unified titles, been the man in a division. Didn't want to do it. Instead, he's fighting Sergey Lipinets. And some people will be impressed that he's won a fourth title in a fourth weight class. But let's look at Mikey Garcia's record. Let's just real quickly take a more detailed look. He beat Orlando Salido for a featherweight title. Good quality win. Probably the best win of his career. Okay. No defenses of, the, of that title. In his very next fight, his first defense, he missed weight. So he basically pulled a Lewis Neri, an Adrian Broner, a uh, Gervonta Davis. That's pretty much the move he pulled in his first defense. So he never had a defense of that featherweight title. He beat Roman Martinez for the super featherweight title. He was actually dropped in that fight, but came back, I think, to stop Martinez. So it was a good quality win for him. He had one defense of that 130-pound title. And then that was it he decided he wanted to be mr businessman he wanted to leave top rank and sit on the shelf for a couple years and do nothing then he comes back with pbc he beats the La last january for a lightweight belt no defenses of that wbc lightweight title it's been over a year yet the wbc hasn't stripped him he's had fights but not at lightweight and now he's fighting for a title in a completely different weight class yet the wbc hasn't stripped him go figure so that's the dude's resume. Is that pound for pound? Is that elite? Now he's been dominant. He's beat some good quality fighters. He has technically won world titles, but what's behind the world titles? What's the substance there? I just, guys, I, I don't look at this guy and see one of the pound for pound best five fighters in the world based on accomplishment. Based on skill set? Eye test? Absolutely. Accomplishment? No. The most I can do for this guy is in the lower uh, range of the top 10 pound for pound. I can't rate him any higher than that. Is Garcia really any more that much accomplished than Adrian Broner? Adrian Broner had over 300 amateur fights, has won titles in four weight classes. Is he that much more accomplished than Ricky Burns, who won titles in three weight classes? Right. If you look at the guys they beat to win those titles... It's pretty weak. It's easy to jump around and wait. I'm not gonna say easy, I shouldn't say easy. Let me go, let me back up. It's not difficult, I'll just say that, to jump around and wait and and do little one-offs for titles here and there in these selective um, situations where you hold every advantage. And that's what I see Mikey Garcia doing. So I'm just not that damn impressed. All right, at StubHub Center in Carson, California, the battlegrounds here in uh, the Los Angeles area. Carson technically is a suburb just south of town. It's an ESPN card from top rank where there's a lot of prospects fighting on this card. And I do believe they're going to stream those prospects fights. So so check that out if you can. In the co-main, an interesting match of prospects, Andy Vincents and Eric deleon Uh, They're 130 pounders. They're fighting in a 10 rounder. Both guys, first big test. Both guys stepping up here. So we're going to find out which one's a pretender and which one might be a possible contender. Vences is from San Jose, California, 20 0 with 12 knockouts. Daily owned, Mexican born, but lives in Detroit, 17 0 with 10 knockouts. And I hear a lot about him from my friends and family back there in Detroit. So uh, I've never seen him up close, so it'll be fun to be there ringside to see him and see how he looks. In the main event, Oscar Valdez defending his WBO featherweight title against Scott Quigg. And this is put-up-or-shut-up time from for Valdez, right? Uh, former Mexican Olympian, 23-0 with 19 knockouts. He's got a few defenses of that featherweight title, but facing his toughest test as a pro, and he's ready. He's 27 years old. So Quig is a few years older. Uh, I think he's 29, so he's two years older. He's listed as 5'8", and uh, Valdez is 5'5". So I haven't seen Quig in person. I can't substantiate if that 5'8 is legit or if his publicist is adding an inch. But on paper, he's the taller guy, but Valdez is the thicker guy because he's fought his whole career pretty much at featherweight. Quigg most of his career at junior featherweight, one twenty two, right. So he had that loss, that split decision loss to Frampton, in a very boring fight that you know didn't live up to expectations. He's three and zero since then, since moving up to one twenty six. But he has faced limited opposition. He's really facing the second best opponent of his career in Valdez, and he's fight. It's the first time fighting a real physical, rugged featherweight that punches with authority, tries to hurt you with every punch. And for Valdez, he's clearly fighting the best opponent of his career, period. So this is an interesting fight, and a lot of people see this as a 50-50 matchup, but I gotta tell you, I've thought about this one more and more and more, and just when you look at career trajectory, I, I, I like Valdez. I like Valdez fairly wide on the cards. And I'm not quite sure this fight will live up to expectations. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't know if it's gonna deliver in terms of action. We will see. All right, guys, that's it for this week's episode. Again, uh, for a while here on YouTube, it's just gonna be an audio thing. It doesn't mean we're not gonna do other videos, right? We're gonna still have interviews and and breakdown videos and uh, fight night highlights, You know, the ringside recaps, all that stuff, the rant videos. So just bear with me while we get the studio set up um, broken down and I put my home on the market. Wish me luck selling it. And then we'll be set up with a new, improved, bigger studio. A lot more to come with that. All right, guys. Uh, if you're there at StubHub this weekend, come say hi to me. We'll uh, we'll, t- we'll talk some boxing and hang out. I'll see you at the fights.